All right, well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you here at prayer meeting, and we are continuing through our study on the book of Romans, and we will go till about 7.45, 7.50, and then have prayer of our study this evening. So why don't we go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer, and we'll get into our study for tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us together this week for another prayer meeting, and I pray for each person here, you know, that we all have challenges and trials in our lives, and I pray that we would trust in you and that you would help us and that we would draw closer to you through the experiences of life. And I also pray now that you would be with us as we study your word, help us to have a deeper understanding of your will for our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, so last week we got through the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1 is an introduction to the book up through verse 17. And then in verse 18 he starts to lay the foundation for where he's trying to go. We'll just summarize a few key points from our study last week in the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 1. And we saw that the first six verses, Paul gives a summary of what the key points of the gospel of Jesus Christ are. Namely, that he is a servant of Jesus Christ and all those who live according to the gospel will also be servants of Jesus Christ, which is 100% devotion to our Master, our Lord, Jesus Christ. We also saw that this gospel was promised in the Old Testament and the first verse that promises the gospel is Genesis 3.15 and Romans 1 verse 2 is a reminder of that. And then we see in verse 3 that Paul says gospel of Jesus Christ, or the gospel of God is about Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who's also our Lord, and he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So the very first thing that Paul points out about the gospel, which is good news, is that Jesus Christ was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And we saw that the reason why that is good news, we find in Romans 8, 3, and 4, that because Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled in us. That's good news. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we see that Jesus is the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. And then we see that with the gospel we receive grace and apostleship. And the purpose for receiving the grace of the gospel is for obedience to the faith. And then we went through and one of the verses that kind of jumped out to me was verse 8 where the faith of the Christians in Rome was spoken of throughout the whole world and we look forward to the time when our faith will be spoken of throughout the whole world. And the power of the gospel is powerful enough to produce a people whose faith will be spoken of throughout the world. And then we get, 
down, he, he kind of gives an introduction. This is who I am. I look forward to coming and meeting you in person. But now I'm going to preach the gospel to you here at Rome. And so in verse 16, well, this is where we'll pick up the meat of our study tonight. We got into verse 16 last time, but this is where we'll pick it up this time. So verse 16, Paul, after he gives his introduction, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, we mentioned this last week, but when Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the first question you might ask is, well, why would Paul need to say that he's not ashamed of the gospel? And perhaps it's helpful to look at the context of the time that he was writing. But if you look at what he said earlier, he says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And if you're a servant of Jesus Christ, we talked about this last week, another word for servant is slave. And if you're a slave to someone, humanly speaking, that invokes this idea of shame, that you are a slave below someone else. But what Paul is saying, you know what, I'm not ashamed to be a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed to be a slave to Jesus because if he's my Lord, what he gives me is salvation. And that obviously is good news for those of us reading the, the gospel here in the book of Romans. But obviously there's more to it than that. He's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And he says, why? Because it's the power of God. And it's the power of God unto salvation. And so what we see in the gospel is that the gospel has power to save how many? Everyone that believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And one of the things that we're going to see as we transition into the concept of the wrath of God in verse 18 is that salvation is for everyone. God is no respecter of persons and he will also pour out his wrath on all those who don't believe the gospel. So God is no respecter of persons and what Paul is trying to say is the gospel is powerful enough to save everyone who believes. And we will get deeper into the concept of what it means to believe when we get to Romans chapter 4 when the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Well, what does that mean? I mean, because James chapter 2 says the devils believe and tremble, but that doesn't mean they're saved. So what does it mean to believe? And Paul just mentions it in passing here. But if you study Romans 4, we'll get into that, about what does it mean to believe. And obviously, the word power comes from the Greek word dunamis, which is similar to dynamite. So the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just a, um, a feel-good story that doesn't change anything. It's something that drastically alters its surroundings, just like dynamite does when it explodes. Um, and that's the power of the gospel. So those are, we kind of went through all that last week. And then verse 17, 
Verse 17 says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. When Paul says therein, what is he referring to? So yes, it's the verse before, and what's in the verse before? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in the gospel of Christ is the righteousness of God revealed. So the good news of the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. So that's good. Now what about the righteousness of God being revealed is good news. It says it's revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, <clears throat> let's take a moment to step back here. What does the righteousness of God mean? One way to say it would be the right doing. Okay, so you could say the right doing of God. And how right doing is God, or how righteous is God? So, God is perfect. And so, the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals the righteousness of God, which is perfect. So, what Paul is saying here is, the gospel of Christ is power of God unto salvation and it reveals the righteousness of God. So if you just take a look at that one phrase it's not just righteousness it's the righteousness of God that's being revealed in the gospel. That's powerful. And where is the righteousness of God revealed? If you read the rest of the verse, it says, from faith to faith. And then Paul gives, gives the illustration of how the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. He says, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Do you see that? So the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. How so? As it's already been written, the just shall live by faith. So then the question is, based on verse 17, where is the righteousness of God revealed? In the just who live by faith. Amen. That's the power of the gospel. So, Paul sets the stage here in chapter 1. He's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation, which means in order to be saved, we need to experience the gospel. And the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So those who are just living by faith reveal the righteousness of God. Okay. Now, <clears throat> what does it mean when it says from faith to faith? It gives you the idea um, that there is a progression and I'm just going to point out a couple of verses. In Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews 11 admittedly is about faith, and we're studying about what it means to live from faith to faith. And 
In Hebrews 11, verse 34, Paul is talking about those who live by faith. He talks about those who quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant and fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. So when Paul says out of weakness some were made strong, how was it that out of weakness they were made strong? I mean, Hebrews 11 is pretty straightforward. It was by faith. So people who were weak were made strong by faith. Now, let me point you to one other verse, Psalms chapter 84, verse 7. Yes. Psalms 84, verse 7. And this verse says, They go from strength to strength, every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. So, the idea here in Psalms 84, 7 is you go from strength to strength. And a simple illustration is in order to gain strength in your muscles, you have to exercise them. And your muscle continues to grow in strength the more you exercise. And so what Paul is saying here is righteousness, when it's revealed from faith to faith, it's going to continue to grow in its demonstration just as strength grows. So people in Hebrews 11, they were weak and they were made strong. And in Psalms 84, they go from strength to strength. Now, one other way to point this out is in Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> and this is familiar. <clears throat> in Romans 5, Paul says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 3, he goes on to say, not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, and so forth. If you think about this carefully, God allows us to pass through trials so that we can develop patience, and through that patience, we develop experience. And from that experience comes hope. Now, when you go through your first trial and you rely on God's grace and strength, when you get through that experience, have you reached the point of full Christian maturity in your life? No, you still have a few more things to learn, or a lot more to learn. And... When we exercise faith through tribulation and patience, our faith will continue to grow. And so when we were new in the faith and God gives us a little trial, the righteousness of God is revealed through the faith that is demonstrated. And likewise, when you go to the very end of the picture, when God has a group of people who pass through Jacob's time of trouble and exercise faith, the righteousness of God is also revealed there. Now, the question then is, when someone, let's just, for illustration purposes, let's say that at home, one of your family members speaks to you in a way that offends you, but you allow the Lord to help you develop patience through that trial and you exercise faith and you demonstrate Christ's righteousness and you don't fight back. In that illustration in 
simple terms, the righteousness of God is being revealed through your life to your family member. Now, sure, to yourself also. Now, think about it this way, though. And that is the power of God, very clearly. However, let's say at the end of time, when you go through Jacob's time of trouble, how much more is the righteousness of God being revealed in those who pass through that experience who, humanly speaking, can't see any way out, and yet they demonstrate or exercise faith through that trial and through that experience, the righteousness of God is manifested through them. Which of those two experiences gives a greater demonstration of the righteousness of God? Sure, the Jacob's time of trouble, because it's going to be a much greater test. However, will God allow you to go through Jacob's time of trouble if you haven't passed a smaller test to get there. So the point is, is that when Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, at every stage that the righteousness of God is manifested, it's perfect. But there's a difference in the level of maturity. And that's a key point. So we can have the experience of the righteousness of Christ now. But we may, well, hopefully, 10 years from now, if the Lord hasn't come, we'll have a much more mature experience in our faith with God, right? If our faith is at the same place 10 years from now as it is now, that's not a good thing. And what Paul is saying here is, Righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, which gives you the idea we will continue to grow in that level of faith. And yet, if the righteousness of God is revealed, the righteousness of God is perfect at every stage. And you can also think, think about it with the illustration of first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. The blade is perfect, but it's not ready to, to be served as corn on the dinner table. But it's perfect at that stage. So... That's just a thought for consideration. Now, I also want to talk a little bit about what it means when it says the just shall live by faith. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because we talked about this this last Sabbath. However, there's a couple of other points I wanted to bring out. Can you think of a key character in the Bible that is described as being just? Just go straight to the top. It's Jesus Christ. Pilate writes a, Pilate's wife writes a letter to Pilate and says, have nothing to do with this just man. And then a few verses, and that's Matthew 27 verse 19. And then in Matthew 27 verse 24, <clears throat> Pilate says, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. So the pagan Romans we're acknowledging that Christ was a just man. And the word just is synonymous with righteous. They mean the same thing. Obviously, Christ was righteous. We know he didn't sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he knew no sin. Um, and yet, because of that, the righteousness of God might be found in us. So Christ is described as the just man. And in Acts 3.14, Peter is speaking to the Jewish leaders in a moment of boldness 
holy boldness. He says, but ye denied the holy one and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. So here Peter describes Jesus as the just. And yet, Paul is saying in Romans chapter 117, the just shall live by faith. Now, is he saying that this only applies to Jesus Christ? No, what he is saying is, is that the gospel is so powerful that not only did Jesus live a righteous life here on this earth, but those who experience the power of the gospel will be just as Jesus was. And when I say just, it means righteous. And they live by faith. And this, Paul is quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And we talked about that on Sabbath also. He also makes this point in Hebrews chapter 10. And I thought that it would be worthwhile to turn over to Hebrews chapter 10 to see the context that Paul uses the same phrase in a different book. <clears throat> he, starting in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Verse 36. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Verse 38, now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in them. Verse 39, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Amen. Now notice what Paul's saying here. Notice what he says, you have need of patience. Does that sound familiar to the third angel's message? The patience of the saints? That after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. What's the will of God in Hebrews chapter 10? It's God writing his law in our hearts and minds. That's in verse 16 and 17. So the new covenant. And also, this God blotting out our sins. That is the will of God. Doing the will of God. And then verse 37. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. That's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. There is also the allusion, though, to the tarrying time of the Millerite movement in that verse. And then, verse 37, now the just shall live by faith. So, <clears throat> what Paul is doing in Hebrews chapter 10 is he's clearly connecting the concept of the just living by faith to the second coming of Christ. So, in order to be ready for Jesus to come... You must be just and living by faith. And that, in essence, is the third angel's message. And it shows up here in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Now, the thing that's interesting, and we talked about it last week, but the concept of the just living by faith is the message that God gave to Paul to give to the Romans and it was that message that Martin Luther heard audibly, perhaps, when he was crawling up the steps in Rome. And he realized that what he was doing was completely foolishness. It was salvation by works. 
And he realized, hey, the just shall live by faith. And so this verse, this one verse, had the power to start the Protestant Reformation. And it brought down spiritual, or papal Rome, which was spiritual Rome, which, interestingly, is who Paul wrote to, the Christians at Rome. So, the just shall live by faith, those in whom the righteousness of God is being revealed, brings down the false system of religious worship that Satan instituted. And then again at the end of time, as that false system is erected again and the mark of the beast is instituted, the power of the gospel is still the power of the gospel. And the just who live by faith will be God's answer to Satan who thinks he has the whole world wondering after him. And God says, but wait a minute. Here's my group of people who are just and they live by faith. Or in other words, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So, if you think about it that way, this one verse in Romans chapter 1 has enough power to save each one of us and it has the power to demonstrate the righteousness of God to the world so that at the end of time when Satan tries to bring in his false system of worship and he gets the whole world to wonder after this system, the power of the gospel is still the power of the gospel. The righteousness of God being revealed in those who are just will still accomplish its work. And so that's what Paul is alluding to in his introduction to the book of Romans. And you would sort of think that after Paul has spent the time to develop that thought that he would go more into the righteousness of Christ. But he actually doesn't. You have to wait till Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, where he again talks about the righteousness of God being manifested. In verse 21, it's without the law. And in verse 22, it's by the faith of Jesus Christ. So there you have it. How is the righteousness of God revealed? In Romans 3, it's by the faith of Jesus Christ. And in Romans 1, the righteousness of God is revealed in the just who live by faith. And so there you see the concept of the just living by faith and the faith of Jesus Christ. That's pretty powerful. And I always enjoy making those connections in the book of Romans. Now we're going to kind of transition, though, to the foundation that Paul lays that makes the gospel such good news. Because if all we saw was, hey, um, Jesus offers us eternal salvation, this is awesome. Well, it, it is. But... What Paul does next in the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3 is he shows very clearly that each and every one of us deserves the wrath of God in and of ourselves. According to the law of God, in the time of judgment, the only thing we deserve is the wrath of God. Because... Romans 3 says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. So what makes us think 
that we can escape the judgment of God when we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Then when you understand that, then the gospel is so sweet and so powerful. So, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And what Paul goes on to describe in the next 14, 15 verses is the unrighteousness that the people in the city of Rome would have been familiar with. And I brought this book, The Two Republics, by A.T. Jones. And starting around page 104, 105, 106, and 107, he describes the type of sins that were being committed in the city of Rome. Things were so bad that men would not marry women because they would immediately get divorced and lose their money and all that kind of stuff. And so Caesar had to make rewards for those who actually stayed married and had several children because people didn't want to have children because if you didn't have children then you could do whatever you wanted to do and all sorts of things. And so Rome was getting to be a really, really bad place to live. And um, believe it or not, if you go to Los Angeles or New York or Chicago, you might find some things that are very similar to what's being described right here. So... Other places closer than L.A., perhaps. Um, so, he, this is A.T. Jones quoting an author who says, The higher classes on all sides exhibited a total extinction of moral principle. The lower were practical atheists. Who can peruse the annals of the emperors without being shocked at the manner in which men died, meeting their fate with the obtuse tranquility that characterizes beasts? The holy ceremonies of religion were violated, adultery reigning without control, the adjacent islands filled with exiles, rocks and deserts, places stained with clandestine murders, and Rome itself, a theater of horrors where, horrors where nobility of descent and splendor of fortune marked men out for destruction. So, <clears throat> based on that picture, then when, when Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And then in verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The Christians in Rome who received this letter from Paul would appreciate what Paul was talking about. They would be like, yeah, those people of the world in this town, they are just awful. And Paul makes it very clear, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So notice what Paul is saying here. You may run into someone who says, you know what, I just don't see how there's any evidence that God can exist. And what Paul is saying is, actually, every single person in this world is without excuse when it comes to the knowledge of God. 
every single one of us. And notice he says, that which be, may be known of God is manifest in them. So it's not just a knowledge, but it's, it's something that's inward that every one of us should know that God exists. And in fact, um, C.S. Lewis once made the statement that the fact that we have a conscience that helps us to discriminate between good, right and wrong is powerful evidence enough that God exists. I mean, if, if we are bent towards doing that which is wrong, how is it that we have a moral compass in us saying, don't do that, that's not the right thing to do? And to deny that that has anything to do with a supernatural power is inexcusable because we all have the opportunity to know about God and his power. And notice that Paul says that it's in the invisible things of him from the creation of the world and how they are clearly seen. You know, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but one illustration that came to my mind is um, in my area of neurology, specifically clinical neurophysiology, um, the science of the nerve action potential. And I'll try not to get too technical and lose all of you, but this is just one illustration. When your brain sends a signal to your body to tell your arm to move, so my right arm's going to move up, my brain sent a signal to do that. And it sent a neurotransmitter that fires down the nerve terminal, which then tr passes through the neuromuscular junction and then activates the muscle membrane to move the way my brain told it to. Now that's fascinating enough. But if you understand the physiology of nerves, what God did was he created a mechanism called the refractory period so that as the nerve action potential propagates down the nerve, if this refractory period wasn't there, the nerve is such that it's not just going to go in a forward direction. The impulse could go backward and forward and then what you would have was, is complete utter chaos with how your limbs and arms and fingers move, you would be like all over the place. But the very fact that there's like a 100 millisecond refractory period means that there can't be that chaos, which means that the impulse can't go backward, it's going to only go forward, and it's going to do what your body, your brain told your arm to do. Now, you tell me that out of chaos came that ordered pathway. I don't buy it. And that's just one example of who knows how many, that through the invisible things of creation, we are without excuse to know the power of God. It's clearly there. And so the wrath of God is going to be poured out against all those who deny that power. And verse 21 says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And we all remember the verse, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Um, notice also here it says, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. There's some imagery of the first angel's message, fear God, give glory to him. These people did not glorify God, therefore they're going to see the wrath of God. And it's interesting that in the first angel's message, part of the message is give glory to him, the hour of his judgment has come. 
And here's a group of people who didn't give glory to God, and they're going to see the wrath of God and the judgment. So there's the contrast. Um, verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. We all are, we're also familiar with a verse that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So here's a group of people who are the opposite of the fear of God. They say in their heart, there is no God. So they certainly don't fear him. Once again, they receive the wrath of God and the judgment. Verse 23, they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So it's interesting that in the first angel's message, you have the concept of God as creator. And these people change God into a created being. Like a corruptible man or birds or four-footed beasts and creeping things. Which he's referring to the idolatry of the pagan Roman Empire. And then referring in verse 24, wherefore, because of all of this, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their hearts, of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And then verse 25 is key. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature or the creation more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now notice what they did here. There's a, the clear concept of the truth of God. And these unrighteous people change the truth of God, that God is creator, that he has all power. And they, ch they change the truth of God. They turn it into a lie. And then they worship and serve creation more than they serve the creator. So he, look what happens here. When you deny the power of God, the first thing, one of the first things that you're going to deny is that God is creator. When you deny that God is creator, you're denying his power. Now when we get to Romans chapter 4, we're going to see that when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, what he believed in Genesis 15, God goes out and says, hey, look at the stars, Abraham. And then Abraham remembered, oh yeah, God made those stars. He's creator. He can create Isaac with me and Sarah, even though it's humanly impossible. And those who don't believe in that, they wouldn't have had the faith of Abraham. Therefore, they wouldn't have received righteousness. Therefore, they would be facing the wrath of God and the judgment. And here's the key point. If you don't believe that God created the way the Bible says God created, you will not be able to exercise faith that is essential to receive the righteousness of God in the judgment. It's impossible. If God doesn't create the way he says he creates, then he doesn't have the power to change your life the way the gospel says it does. And so if you start accepting things like theistic evolution or evolution altogether, in reality, you're not a Christian. That's the bottom line. You may think you are, but according to the Bible... The power of God and understanding his power starts with the understanding that God is creator. Amen. So that's a key point. Now, the last few verses sort of just summarize what happens when we deny God 
and his power as creator. And I'll read through these. Verse 26. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women to change the natural use into that which is against nature. Verse 27. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Now, I don't need to explain to you what this means. I mean, you can be a third grader, read those two verses, and figure out that the Bible is condemning homosexuality. And I get concerned when I see Seventh-day Adventists saying that we should be tolerant of that behavior in our church because the Bible clearly condemns it. And it only makes sense that these same Seventh-day Adventists are the same Seventh-day Adventists that deny that God created the earth in six literal days. It goes together. So if you read Romans 1 hey, God didn't create the earth in six literal days. The next thing, hey, what's so bad about homosexuality? And why don't we just go back to the Bible and see what the Bible says? And so, pretty straightforward. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, which also means a mind void of judgment, to do those things which are not convenient. Verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So here's a long list of unrighteousness, homosexuality, unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, and so forth. I mean, this is like reading the headlines from the news today. But notice this, disobedient to parents, without natural affection, unmerciful, and then knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, which is the wrath of God. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So starting off here, it's like, man, Paul is just coming down with a hammer. You do all these things and you are going to face death through the wrath of God and the judgment. And yet, the Christians in Rome who get this letter are like, yep, those people in Rome that you're talking about, I totally agree with you, Paul. They are going to burn in the judgment. And then you get to chapter 2, verse 1. And Paul says, wait a minute. Yep, those guys are bad, but if you're sinning as a Christian, God's no respecter of persons. And the judgment will come to you as well. And all of a sudden, the playing field gets leveled because you're kind of sitting back like, man, I am so glad that I don't commit adultery and that I'm not a murderer And I'd have never even thought of going out and shooting people. Although, man, in this day and age, it's becoming more common and it's scary. Um, But hey, you know, I I don't commit fornication. I'm not a liar and whatever, all those things. Man, that's for the wicked over there in Rome. And then Paul says, you know, and we'll get to this next week. You think you're going to escape the judgment when you're breaking the law of God as well? You may not be going out and killing people. But if you're breaking God's law and you know that you are, same end result for you. And so the beginning of Romans kind of starts off like, oh man, 
I'm a sinner. I'm horrible. How is it possible? But obviously, the power of the gospel is going to come. And in chapter 4, it says, hey, just so you know, here's a human being who had the experience. His name is Abraham. And in chapter 5, just so you know, even though Adam sinned, Christ's effect on our race is more powerful than Adam's. So don't let Adam bring you down. And it goes on from there. So there is good news coming. But when you get started, what we see is God has no respect of persons. He's going to pour out his wrath on the wicked. And not just on those who totally deny God as creator and they go out and do all these horrible things that we know are clearly against scripture. But if we know what is right and we don't allow the power of the gospel to come into our lives, we are subject to the same judgment as the wicked. So having said that, let's make sure that we experience the power of the gospel in our lives so that when the time of judgment comes, we'll be ready. And just as a reminder, God raised up Seventh-day Adventists to give a judgment hour message so that we will tell the world of the good news of the everlasting gospel so that people don't have to receive the wrath of God. And in his great mercy to us and to the world, God gave us those three messages of mercy. So those are worth further study as well, how they connect into this. And we'll continue to do that. So at this point, we're going to break up into prayer groups again to finish our prayer meeting. Um, I would encourage those of you who have special prayer requests to bring those up in your group. And um, we will spend some time praying And I'd also encourage you to think about ways that God is convicting you of things in your life and to pray for those things as well as we have our special prayer time. So this time, let's break up into different groups. Let's say groups of three or four. I really don't want to see groups of five and six because then it takes 25 minutes to pray and um, it's more efficient to have groups of no more than four. Um, And then we'll wrap up here at eight o'clock. So... Let's go ahead and break it for prayer.